Poor Elk followed about a mile to where the pursued party had camped. He brushed away the ashes from the dead fires and felt of the earth underneath, examined the droppings of the animals, counted the number of fires, and noticed, by marks made by the pines, the size of the lodges, carefully scrutinized some moccasins, bits of cloth, etc., that had been thrown away, noticed the moccasins were sewn with thread instead of sinew and were made as the Sioux made them, A sweat lodge had been built, indicating that they had remained in camp at least one day, and the droppings of the animals determined that the stay had been but one. The position of the camp, the tying of the animals near the teepees and the wiki-ups, the number of lodges, the care taken by the Indians in leaving, all these things furnished evidence as to the number of Indians and animals and the number of days since they had camped there. Though moving steadily, yet were in no special hurry, were Sioux and not Cheyenne, had recently left an agency, had not crossed the Yellowstone at the time reported, but two days earlier, were evidently a party of Sioux who were on the way to join the Indians north of the British line. In fact, the record left by these Indians was as complete as though it had been carefully written out. U.S. Army Officer Homer Wheeler, 1874. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. <sighs> On today's podcast episode, we've got more music from our friend Earl Souter. That was Wildwood Flower on the Mandolin. And that quote was from a book called Tracking Humans. And Tracking Humans is today's subject. Pretty intense one. So we will be speaking with Mike Hall. He is a Virginian, a retired game warden. He is an outdoorsman. He's a special deputy, which is a wild topic. It's almost some, it's almost like the Wild West. He gets to, um, he gets like a special law enforcement uh, becoming deputized when he is needed because of his tracking abilities. Incredible. And he's also the founder of Hull's Tracking School. And you can look a little more into that at hullstrackingschool.com. He has a book there for sale. I believe it's an online book about uh, tracking for law enforcement. He's also got really cool t-shirts, but uh, they are currently out of stock. So maybe he'll get them get them back again. Being a illustrator an artist, and more of a creative type, I find uh, speaking with someone more of the law and enforcement and law and order and practical, I find it it's so fascinating because it's so different than how I, my life, completely different than my life, and certainly a different way of looking at life. So I thoroughly enjoyed this episode. 
Uh, I'm thankful that there are people like Mike to handle some of these darker situations with people who have broken the law, et cetera. I'm thankful that there are people out there who will dedicate their own life and safety to such things. Um, and I found, I, I wasn't sure, you know, this podcast, I get into paranormal stuff so much. I love all that stuff. I love all the numinous, the mysterious, the spiritual. I wasn't sure we would have any of that on today's episode. And, but I'm very thankful that we certainly did. Um, Mike told a, a very powerful story about when he worked in a prison and he was dealing with kind of a darkness, a depression. And um, he tells about what he considers a, an experience with the Holy Ghost. So definitely stick around for that story because that was a lot of wisdom came out of hearing that and um, just very powerful. We also got into a few little bits about Appalachian water witching, um, herbalism from the survivalist point of view, a little bit different. And um, even one of his buddies, a neighbor who does remote viewing. So, I mean, talk about, cross your fingers for that being another podcast guest, someone who remote views to solve crimes and other forms of like espionage. I'm not even really sure, but wow. There's definitely some really cool moments on this episode. And um, one, I mean, I'll speak for myself, I can't help but be so intensely intrigued by the idea of man tracking. So I'll keep this intro real short on this one. Um, let's say thank you to the Patreon patrons. So those of you who are helping out at the highest tier are Jess Paget, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw, On Stanley of Pyramid Metaphysical Store in Waynesboro, Virginia, Bailey Grenert. Bailey, I saw her this weekend with John. Uh, they came out all the way from Ohio to our friend's 18th century trades fair. So if you had listened to the episode about uh, old time sugar maple syrup making, well, Tim had his fair over the weekend and it was a huge hit. He had 500 people come to his farm over two, two and a half days, and Bailey came all the way out for it. So it was awesome to see her and um, two others who came from the podcast. So I think about four, maybe a few more people came from the podcast. So thank you. Um, also, Franklin Renshaw, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Rambler, Ryan Goeckner, Tyler Lively, and last, but certainly not least, Waterlight and everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you so much. You're really helping with this podcast. It's just me doing this. Um, you know, there are many costs from driving around uh, to get to these fascinating guests to sometimes having to stay overnight to my time not working on my illustration paid work to, uh, you know, paying for the podcast hosting and buying sound effects. So this, I really appreciate um, your patronage coming in every month. It's really helping to um, sustain this podcast. And I'm, I find this podcast really meaningful. And I'm so happy that that you two are finding something worthy of um, listening to in this podcast. So thank you so much. Now, in the intro of our conversation, I made a kind of a stupendous claim about the Comanche. So I wanted to find the reference in the book, The Empire of the Summer Moon, it's not exactly what I had remembered, which is a tracking um, 
a statement about their tracking skills, but here I'll just read it. This is partly because the European mind simply could not comprehend the distances the average Comanche could travel. The nomadic range of their bands was about 800 miles. Their striking range, this confused the insurgent populations as much as anything, was 400 miles. This meant that a Spanish settler or soldier in San Antonio was in grave and immediate danger from a Comanche brave sitting before a fire in the equivalent of modern-day Oklahoma City. It took years before anyone understood that the same tribe that was raiding on the plains of Durango, Mexico, was also riding above the Arkansas River in modern-day Kansas. That kind of sets the tone for today's intro reading. Westerners have long revered the tracking abilities of indigenous people from all over the world. So I wanted to read an excerpt from a anthropologist named Baldwin Spencer, a British anthropologist whose book is titled Native Tribes of Central Australia. This was written in 1898, so some of the language is a little outdated. So We'll have to just bear with that. But I found um, his excerpts about the Australian Aboriginals uh, quite amazing. And it gets into a little bit of the shamanism and the spiritual side, as well as tracking. And of course, I'm going to completely botch all of the Aboriginal names. I I mean, I have absolutely no idea how to pronounce them. The tracking powers of the native are well known, but it is difficult to realize the skill which they display unless one has seen them at work. Not only does the native know the track of every beast and bird, but after examining any burrow, he will at once, from the direction in which the last track runs, tell you whether the animal is at home or not. From earliest childhood, boys and girls alike are trained to take note of every track made by every living thing. With the women especially, it is a frequent amusement to imitate on the sandy ground the tracks of various animals, which they make with wonderful accuracy with their hands. Not only do they know the varied tracks of the latter, but they will distinguish those of particular men and women. In this respect, the men vary greatly, a fact that is well known to and appreciated by those in charge of the native police in various parts of the interior of the continent. Whilst they can all follow tracks which would be indistinguishable to the average white man, there is a great difference in their ability to track when the tracks become obscure. The difference is so marked that while an ordinary good tracker will have difficulty in following them while he is on foot and so can see them close to, a really good one will unerringly follow them up on horse or camelback. Not only this, But strange as it may sound to the average white man whose meals are not dependent upon his ability to track an animal to its burrow or hiding place, the native will recognize the footprint of every individual of his acquaintance. Amongst the central Australian natives, there is no such thing as belief in natural death. However old or decrepit a man or woman may be when this takes place, it is at once supposed that it has been brought about by the magic influence of some enemy. And in the normal condition of the tribe, the death of one individual is followed by the murder of someone else who is supposed to be guilty of having caused the death. 
Not infrequently, the dying man will whisper in the ear of a medicine man, the name of the man whose magic is killing him. If this be not done, there is no difficulty by some other method of fixing sooner or later on the guilty party. Perhaps when digging the grave, a hole will be found leading out on one side, which at once shows the direction in which the culprit lives. Or this may be indicated perhaps as long as a year after the death by a burrow made by some animal on one side of the grave. The identity of the guilty man is always revealed by the medicine man. When it is known who the culprit is, a Kurdacha party may be arranged to avenge the death. This custom is, so the natives say, much less frequently carried out at the present day than in former years, and in the southern parts of the tribe seems to have died out altogether. When it is decided who is guilty, a council of old men of the group to which the dead man belonged is held, and if it be decided that vengeance is to be exacted by means of a Kurdacha party, then the man who is to play this part is chosen. Their name Kurdacha is applied to the latter, and he wears the shoes to which by white men the name Kurdacha shoes has been given. These shoes have the form of a thick pad of emu feathers matted together with human blood drawn from the arm of some young man. They are so ingeniously made, however, that the use of anything like blood in their construction would never be suspected. Indeed, it is difficult to detect, even with the shoes in one's hand, how the feathers are matted into such a compact mass without apparently the use of anything like stitching. On the upper surface is a network of human hair string made from the hair of any living man or woman. It does not in the least signify who the individual is. And in the middle of the network is a hole through which the foot passes and across which stretches a cord made of several strands of hair string twisted together. Before a man may wear the shoes, he has to submit to a most painful ordeal. A stone is heated to redness and then applied to the ball of the small toe of either foot. It does not matter which, until, as the natives say, the joint is softened when, with a sudden jerk, the toe is pulled outwards and the joint is thus dislocated. There is no doubt that some such ordeal as this is passed through, as we have examined feet of men who claim to be what is called ertois kurdachu. Each kurdachu man when going on his errand, is accompanied by a medicine man, and the two men are rubbed over with charcoal, black being in the Arunta tribe the color associated with magic, and decorated with bands of white down. Both of the men wear the interlinea, the shoes, which, when thus in use, are decorated with lines of white and pink down, and while they are being put on and attached to the feet and legs with human hair string, the Kurdecha sings, Interlina turla atipa, interlina atipa, which literally translated means interlinea, to me hold fast. Interlinea, hold fast. Followed by the medicine man, the Kurdecha takes the lead until the enemy is sighted. Then the medicine man falls into the rear, while the Kurdecha stealthily creeps forward towards his quarry and suddenly rising up, spears him before he is aware of the presence of an enemy. Both medicine man and Kurdecha have meanwhile put the sacred Chiringa between their teeth, and when they are thus armed, the spear cannot fail to strike the victim. As soon as this is done, the Kurdecha man goes away to some little distance from the fallen man, and from which 
he cannot see the operations of the medicine man who now approaches and performs his share in the work. By aid of his magic powers and by means of the Atnangara stones, he heals the victim. These Atnangara stones are small crystalline structures which every medicine man is supposed to be able to produce at will from his own body throughout which it is believed that they are distributed. In fact, it is the possession of these stones which gives to the medicine man his virtue. Into the spear wounds he rubs a white greasy substance called urnia, which he obtains by pressure of the skin glands on the outside of the nostril. After all external traces of the wound have disappeared, he goes quietly away, and together with the Kurdecha man returns to his own country. Having been touched by the Atnangara stones, the victim returns to life but is completely ignorant of all that has taken place. He returns to camp and in a short time sickens and dies. His death is attributed to Kurdecha or to some other form of magic influence, but no one will be able to trace the tracks of the Kurdecha. Whilst there is much of a mythical nature about the Kurdecha, it is quite possible that there is a certain amount of truth underlying a good deal that is, of course, a matter of pure imagination. It is very possible that the shoes, if not actually used at the present day, have been used in past times for the purpose of aiding in secret killing, and to the present day, the fear of the Kurdecha man lurking around is always present with the native. We have met several Kurdecha men who claim to have killed their victim and many more men who are perfectly certain that they have seen Kurdecha. One group of men will tell you that they do not go Kurdecha, but that another group does do so. And if you then question the latter, they will tell you that they do not, but that their accusers do. It is in fact a case of each believing the other guilty and both being innocent. At the same time, many will at once confess that they do go Kurdecha, when as a matter of fact, they do not. As to the question of tracking, the idea which has been generally held that the shoes are used to prevent the tracks being seen will not be regarded as at all satisfactory by those who are acquainted with the remarkable power of the Australian native in this respect. They will neither hide the track, nor, though they are shaped alike at each end, will they even suffice to prevent any native who cares to look from seeing at a glance which direction the wearer has come from, or gone towards. Any even moderately experienced native will without the slightest difficulty, tell from the faintest track, from an upturned stone, a downbent piece of grass, or a twig of shrub, not only that someone has passed by, but also the direction in which he has traveled. The only way in which they can be of use in hiding tracks is by preventing it from being recognized who was the particular individual, and in this way they might be of service. For when once an experienced native almost incredible though it may sound to those who have not had the opportunity of watching them, has seen the track of a man or woman, he will distinguish it afterwards from that of any other individual of his acquaintance. Most probably, the explanation is not that the native cannot follow the track, but that either he persuades himself that he cannot, or, what is still more likely, that the fear of the magic power of the dreaded Kurdecha causes him if he catches sight of such a track, to avoid as much as possible the spot where he has seen it, in just the same way in which an ordinary European peasant will avoid the spot haunted by a ghost.
We're in Nelson County, Virginia, central part of Virginia, just south of uh, Charlottesville, right on the east side of 29 at the Nelson and Albemarle County line. And is that the Shenandoah Park that I crossed through, the bottom of it? Yeah, yes. We're in the foothills of the Shenandoah Mountains. I mean, the Blue Ridge Mountains, just below uh, the Shenandoah National Park. Very nice. So, Saturday, I met you <laughs> at our mutual friend's place. He was having an 18th century trades, crafts, history fair. And I saw you there, and you were wearing a tracking t-shirt, and so I thought, oh, he, this man must, he must have, it said like tracking school. So I thought, oh, cool. You know, I, I haven't gotten into um, bushcraft, ancestral skills. I haven't gotten into any of that stuff yet, but but I've done some trapping. I'm a hunter. So I'm like, oh, cool. This guy must do tracking classes, like animal tracking. And I come <laughs> over to you and I start talking to you. And then you tell me it's man tracking. And I'm like, oh my Lord, I've got to talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah yep it's kind of it's a little bit different and i tell people i teach tracking i usually don't go beyond that and let them think what they want and most people think i i teach about animal tracking but that's not so uh, teach now, about tracking people now i thought on my drive here i thought a cool way to start our conversation since we met at this history fair would be about tracking perhaps back through history. And I was thinking about how all of our ancestors, whether you have, you know, wh whether your ancestors were Native Americans 200 years ago, whether your ancestors today are the Sands Bushmen in Africa, or our ancestors in Europe, you know, whatever they were, Germanic tribes or the Celtic tribes, they must have been incredible trackers, both of, of course, because they're hunters of animals, but of course also of other human beings. Oh, exactly. It's all about being aware of your surroundings. What's there, what's been there, what's, what's been there recently, and what's been there in the past. So it's, uh, especially back in those days, you know, there's, yeah, like there is this day and time too, either a lot of fighting or a lot of stealing and theft. And so who's coming and going in and out of your area? So it's a, a great form of awareness. Now, have you, in your study of, of tracking, man tracking, was there anything from history that you were, was like really interesting to you? Is there anything that comes to mind? All of it, every bit of it. I, I think a really important part was, uh, just an example of how they had the Apaches uh, do our tracking for us back there and how the Kalahari Bushmen do their tracking. And uh, the thing is, they grew up doing this and learning how to read sign their whole life, but they didn't know how to teach it. Hmm. They couldn't articulate to you what they were actually doing and, and the, the method that they were using. So hmm. people would just hire them to do it for them. You mean back in the day, like the scouts and stuff right, like that? exactly. I remember reading, I don't know if you've read it, there's an amazing book about the Comanche called Empire of the Summer yeah, Moon. Oh, yeah. Oh, Ooh, yeah. About the Texas Rangers, about Quanah Parker, who was right. half white, half Comanche. He became a Comanche warrior. But I read it maybe about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. so I can't remember exactly what it said, but there was something in there that blew my mind that said something astonishing. Like, if you were 100 miles from a Comanche warrior or a Comanche tracker, you were not safe. Is something astonishing like that, like an enormous amount mm. of, of <laughs> and I was like, what? I couldn't believe it when I read it. Mm. Well, they'd have to pick up on your track and go after you, but uh, 
I don't, that does sound pretty far-fetched out there. But, <laughs> well, it might be. I wasn't there, so I'm not going to. And out west, too, is totally different than out east here. People have asked me, how far have you tracked? And these Appalachian Mountains, I, I said about two miles. Okay. Huh. People out west, they've tracked 20 or 30 miles. But when I go out there, my gosh, I can see tracks as far as my eyes would let me see. But you don't do that up here in these Appalachian Mountains. Totally different. Each environment has its own challenges. Well, it, let's so. talk about that because I, I wanted to ask you that. There must be a big difference between tracking in sand and tracking oh. in deciduous forests like oh, here. Oh, exactly. Tracking in the jungle, the, the medium and the time of year makes a huge difference. Frozen ground versus soft ground versus damp ground and dry ground. So uh, every little bit of the elements, uh, and especially moisture, plays a large part in uh, whether it makes it hard or easier, you can go to one place and not track, and the the weather temperature change, the moisture change, and be able to track in it. So things change up, and you got to learn and practice through all the seasons, not just one season, and then think you can track because it changes with the seasons. Your key sign changes what you look for. So what is the hardest scenario, and, and what's going to be an easier scenario? Obviously, I, I get asked that a whole lot. My hardest scenario is where someone's just bush-hogged, and you're trying to track someone across it. There's so much damage done and so much to the natural environment that it's just overwhelming. Or, or after a storm where high winds, where limbs are broken, leaves are twisted around, and things of that nature. It's just you got so much contamination to, to work through. I and, see what you're saying. If there's a lot of damage to the ground and to the vegetation, then that's going to mask mm -hmm. any footprints, any body movement through. Exactly. We work off of a baseline. What's natural and what's been disturbed. And when you get after a storm or a bush hog, everything's been disturbed. So you got a whole lot to filter through. And that, that'll slow you down tremendously. And obviously, snow is going to be one of the easiest, right? Most of the times, but you could be that could be pretty surprising too, because number one, you get different types of snows. You know, you get wet snows, you get dry snows, mm -hmm. powdery snows where the wind can cover tracks up and, uh, when it's blowing, so uh, and there's different procedures during, the, according to the types of snows that you have that you could use to to find the tracks or at least establish a, a direction. Mm. You can't always follow the trail, mm. but what you can most likely do most of the time is at least establish a direction so that you can put any other resources you got, utilize them most efficiently. So. Uh, there's a whole lot more to tracking than, than most people think there is. Well, I hope to get, to get into a little bit of it today. Um, so I guess, I guess maybe to go back a little bit to really how. So I looked at your website, and it sound you were game warden in Virginia. It sounded like there was a uh, a void in the tracking area, and you kind of. Did you perhaps take it upon yourself to learn it, to be better at being game warden? Can you talk about how did you, how did this all start? Because now you have this super successful tracking school. You teach military, you teach law enforcement. How did this all start? 
You're exactly right. I uh, when I first become a game warden, I thought this would be the type of stuff that we we would learn. I thought because we're going to be working out in the woods, we're going to be finding people trespassing, baiting areas, and poaching and tracking. I thought would be the, the uh, part of what we would be taught and learn types of woodcraft and all that. But no, the all that would void. And as I worked through the years you start picking up on some stuff and using tracking. But I also see that when someone is uh, from other law enforcement agencies is being chased into the woods, they have no clue on uh, how to how to recover them in the, into the woods. And most of them don't even want to go off the hard top, the black top, uh, simply because of the environment, the weeds, the poison oak and poison ivy and ticks and chiggers and snakes and all that stuff, and uh, you got these trained teams that goes in and clears a building and does excellent work, but you put them out in the field just doing a grid search, and uh, they're just not effective doing that when you're out in the woods, because you can hide from anybody out in the woods, and uh, doing a grid search, uh, okay, they're not there right now, but had they been there? You know, which direction have they gone when they left? But uh, tracking, you can learn, be so much more efficient at searching for someone. But anyway, I got thinking about midway through my career, what am I going to do after the career? And we're, that, uh, I noticed that void, and I thought, were there, were, did, were there certain experiences while you were a game warden that you were like, damn it, I don't have the, the tools Oh, exactly, exactly. Could you tell an example of that? Oh, <laughs> I can think. I know I got a bunch of them, but just pulling them to my mind right up. This, I mean, searching for lost people. And you more, mean people more. like lost hikers, lost hunters? Yeah, yeah. Just people going out hiking and getting lost. We had a lot of experiences with that and called out to help simply because we knew the area as the game wardens. And where they might go, and uh, well, you know, I don't even know very much about that. So, when someone is lost, who in the wilderness, who shows up? Hmm. Who shows up first? Usually, well, when you got wilderness, it's it's usually state or federal property hmm. most of the time. So, so the part so, it would be the who it would be like the national forest rangers and stuff, right? Whoever's in uh, uh, char- the, charge of that property, a okay, parkway so, be park rangers. Uh, Wildlife management areas, it would be game wardens. And uh, some areas had established search and rescue people. Uh, the state of Virginia now has a, a excellent resource for that through VDM. And, uh, but, you know, what generally happens, just locals that know the area come in and start searching. And then when they can't find anything, then they call in VDM. Do you mean like, like I mean civilians, farmers, yeah, and exactly going friends, up in the mountains? Yeah, wow. friends and farmers, and the, and they're just walking through the woods yelling their names. So. Mm. And what and all that's good and all they're doing the best that they can by calling those people. But if they call in trained peoples to start off with, once they fail to find them, then they call in trained people. Then the trained people's got all this contamination they got to work through. Oh, I see what you mean, of course. From all the searchers' tracks and stuff. And then the a canine unit coming in. Now you've got all this mixed scent in the wood. Now, which one does the dog follow? 
Mm. Uh, so, you know, you got to be well trained in that. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a bungled mess. I, I've seen them pour in all the resources they got, like uh, bringing a helicopter and it's flying over top and looking down through the woods, trying to part the tree limbs so they can see. Well, it's blowing all the scent from a canine all over the place and mm. spreading that out where he can't follow it. It's also making all kinds of disturbance on the ground from the leaves where a tracker. Mm. It, it, so everything's working against each other that way. Wow. And, uh, and it's not, you know, everybody's trying to do the best that they can do. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's all boils down to, to training. How can we do this effectively and efficiently? And have somebody in charge that actually knows what they're doing, and instead of someone just trying to justify their equipment that they got or their or what they're they've been trained to do. It's, it's, yeah, it's like you need organization. So I just went down for the podcast. I went down and uh, made a new friend with someone down in Kentucky who's just been in the big floods that they had, and it was kind. At first, it was very much that everybody's trying to help out. But you really need organization to exactly. kind of like make sure the supplies get to the right people, make sure everyone's – make sure efficiency in this yeah. crisis situation. So did you have – so you had experiences like that looking for people and you were frustrated by the lack of the, the tracking abilities of you and your team or what, what – No, it's more the – you know, you don't get called in until the last moment, the last resort instead of calling you at the beginning. I mean uh, – uh, just in a law enforcement case, you know, they got drugs that come into post office. They follow it to the house. They get a search warrant, and they go to the house, and the guy runs out the back door with drugs. And uh, they don't call me till four hours later, and he's done been picked up. But I got on the track, and I could just about run on it, and I found where he sat and watched his back track and, and all. Had they called me at first, I could have caught up with him before we got to where he got picked up because he's – a mile or so away, but they brought a dog in. Uh, one of the deputies had a dog at the time, and it didn't do much good on it and all, and they piddled around up there searching the house and all before deciding to call me in, and shoot, he's way gone by then. <laughs> mm. We found where he went, made his way all to another road and hid under the bridge and got picked up. Mm. And... Uh, and you were able to track that the whole time? Yeah. Wow. Yep. yep. I had one guy who knew nothing about tracking. He was an ex-Marine, but he knew how to take orders. And, boy, he worked just awesome with me. I'd tell him, all right, you stay right here. This is my last track. Let me check these couple areas. All right, here it is here. Come on up to me. And he stayed with me and watched as my protection as, as I focused on the ground and what I was doing. Oh, of course. I guess, yeah, I guess if you're kneeled over – on a crime scene, if you're kneeled over mm -hmm. looking at the ground, you never know if someone's yeah. going to come out of the woods and pop you in the head. You don't even have to be kneeled over because when you're, your eyes are focused on the ground when you're tracking mm. mostly. And mm. it's, it's how, and you learn when, as you track too, that you're not bent over looking at the ground. Mm. You track, you keep your head up mm. and look at the track out 30 yards in front of you, mm. not down at your feet. And that way your peripheral vision's picking up movement and, and other things all the way around you. And you also, are better aware of your surroundings so that you don't get lost as you move through. Mm. So, mm. so it's not looking at the only time you look at your feet when you're tracking is when you're trying to verify it. <sighs> okay, I got disturbance going all the way out here. Is it human or is it animal? 
So because uh, when you're about animal tracking, you got to learn a lot about the animals in your area because you're always going to run through contamination. Is that a deer track? Is that or a deer trail? Or is that a beaver where it came out of the, the creek here? Or was that a person to come out of the creek? Mm. Uh, cattle going across domestic animals and going through turkey scratching and hogs rooting up. And you got to know what's making that uh, all that disturbance. Wow. As you're going well, I do the, want to get into the details of it, but um, but so so you were a game warden. <laughs> okay, you were a game warden. You were on a lot of these search and rescues, and and then I guess when you when you're you retired as a warden, you were trying to figure well, out the next step, and you wanted to be a. You really were uh, inspired yeah, by the tracking. I was. We kind of got off track there, but uh, that's okay. We'll track back. Yeah, we're going to go <laughs> back and start over at the last known and. Uh, we uh, yeah, I started thinking. Well, who's got a name out there about tracking? Who's teaching tracking? Let's go to these schools. And I thought I knew how to track, being a trapper and a bow hunter and a lot of hunting. And uh, I went to these schools and started looking at structured training and what they're teaching. Things I've never considered before. I've seen it, but didn't know what it was telling me. Like what? Like how to read the ground. Not that there's just a footprint there, but which direction that footprint's going. Hmm. Uh, you know, how hard did it hit the ground? Oh, uh, wow. If they're, so does that mean if they're running or walking? Exactly. Wow. You can, you can tell a whole lot. Uh, you know, the ground was stomped hard. I mean, the ground, the only reason you leave a track because it's not a solid. If it's not a solid, then in between whatever on the ground it's, it's it's either water or air so when you hit it hard it splays out the sides of the track of so, course it'd be like if you punched mud or something exactly it, it pushes out when on you're the a sides. kid you stomp in a mud puddle where's it go Flat. but if you step in there real softly then that doesn't splatter out so far same basic thing but anyway i went to all these different classes i went to all the instructors that i could find both animal uh tracking, uh, search and rescue instructors, tactical tracking, and uh, mm, there's stuff out there that I wouldn't dare repeat simply because it's not I, – I went with the idea, if I can't convince a jury of it, then it's of no value mm. to me. And uh, that's what I retained, and the rest of it, I just let that slip through the fingers and uh, – Wait, wait. What does that mean? You mean there was some stuff that was more like a little bit on the oh uh, bull crap, blowing smoke. I mean, uh, you, I can tell if a man's got a quarter in his pocket or not. I can tell if he's been to the bathroom or he's got to go to the bathroom or not. I okay, mean, so it got a little bit more metaphysical, uh, spiritual. I can hold my hand over it and feel the vibrations coming up from the track. Yeah, I do think some people might have stuff like that. I have looked at a woman for this podcast. She's in Philadelphia and she's a psychic. That mm -hmm. oh no, sorry, she's in Pittsburgh and she works with the police department on finding mm -hmm. on finding murders and bodies. Mm -hmm. And that, but that seems very rare that you get that kind of thing. And and I know and exactly yeah. how do you prove it in court? And and there's a fellow over here that was one of the the leading guys in that Joe Mc, up McMonagle. Okay. And he's got a book out on okay. that, and he was a friend of mine. I've been on searches with him, and he's done some wonderful things like that, too. Really? But it's all about uh, 
Oh, let me see how can I put this. Uh, Do you believe that you know, your buddy does have a some kind uh, of sixth sense? Well, we all have a sixth sense. Mm -hmm. Let's just say it's more developed, and mm. you, and it's all about being open minded. And uh, there's sixth sense when your your mind is a fabulous thing. It's unbelievable uh, if you just pay attention to it. When you think something's there, it's because you've noticed something, mm. heard something, or smelled something mm. that uh, you've smelled before and recognize it, and you're. Six cents basically picked up on it, but you haven't processed it yet. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's a deep subject you get on into that. <laughs> but anyway, let's go back before we get down a rabbit hole here. Okay. And uh, it uh, no, I went to the, all these different people, and and I, I I learned a lesson about tracking from a blind boy scout. Let's hear that, which is awful interesting. I was teaching animal tracking to the Boy Scouts, and I would draw, okay, here's the difference between a cat and a dog, or a canine and a feline, and I would draw the tracks out and point out the difference, the number of the toes, claws, no claws, uh, the flow of the toes, and all of this. Then I'd hold up a cast of a dog and a cat, then I'd pass these casts around. And... This first boy scout that I handed it to, I hold it to him. The scoutmaster's behind him. He said, he's blind. He can't see it. I said, okay. I handed it to the next guy and said, I want him to stay when I finish. And uh, after I finished the class, he come down and sat down by me. And I went through everything again and let him hold the cast and fill it with his fingers, what I'm talking about. And then he could see it with his mind's eye. Mm-hmm because he could feel it. And after that class, and thinking, just thinking about, he can't see it, what I'm talking about. I thought, you know what? That jury's blind. That judge is blind. The prosecutors are blind because they don't use tracking evidence anymore. They don't teach it in the criminal justice center. So I'm going to be working with blind people the whole time when I'm pushing the this tracking evidence said I'm going to have to be able to articulate exactly what I'm seeing and document everything that I'm seeing so that I can hand it to them just like teaching that blind boy mm. and I thought that was pretty powerful uh, to go with that attitude too so you know I take a lot of pictures when I'm doing the, the, the tracking and uh, and uh, use a lot of GPS stuff and, and and put maps up and put everything where I found it and pictures of what it was that I was seeing so they can see it too at that point. So did the blind boy, mm -hmm. um, by feeling the impressions, what, what he was able to understand the differences? Exactly, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a cast? For like touch, a, Yeah, mm. three-dimensional cast so he could feel what I was talking about. Mm. Well, that's powerful. Yeah. They always say like the people who are best at uh, like education teachers or science science educators, you have to be able to articulate all these ideas. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to make someone like me. I don't know anything about man tracking. I need to understand what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty a pretty amazing lesson to have learned from that guy. Yeah. So I always I talk about it just about every class. I said I learned a lot from a blind Boy Scout mm. on how to present this stuff. And, and talk about it and explain it. So you were studying from all these mentors and, and you kind of 
pieced together what you needed and created your own school. Right, right. And I still, you know, uh, throughout the years, you know, I, I met other people who taught tracking, and then I go to their schools, and then they come to my schools, and I go help them teach, and then they help me teach. And because, uh, you know, we got people who specialize in search and rescue, so if I got classes that are really wanting search and rescue, then I have this fella help me instruct. I got another, had another fellow that teaches tactical stuff, had a lot of experience in that. So if they want tactical stuff, I'd have him come in. Then I'd also help him teach classes. And uh, then uh, like I got a canine instructor. He's a, he was a track instructor and canines, which he came through tracking up through my classes. And now he's really one of the I'd say one of the better canine instructors on the East Coast right now. And so if I got classes, like I had one in Pennsylvania where they're putting the canine handlers and the trackers working together as a team, mm. not against each other, and how they could efficiently assist and help each other. Mm. And so when I went to do that class, I had him come with me because he knows all about the canines and, and how to operate and uh, handle them. And the canines work the way you train them. You can train them to do things that uh, they're not dummies, them dogs. The only dummies are the handlers. Oh, sure. Knowing how to how to efficiently use their dogs and train them to do what they want. So I've got a little squirrel dog, and she's only a year old, so we do some squirrel hunting. But she works from scent, from sight, and uh, from her hearing to track squirrels. Um, and I've gone out with bear hunters, you know, obviously that runs by scent. What kind of, um, breeds do, when they do search and rescue or for the criminal, what, what breed of dogs do they use for that? I think the most common, of course, you got the bloodhound and a lot okay. of labs are being used Interesting. And, a, and a lot of shepherds. And then you got some, some other dogs, poodles and really? other types of dogs. But the, the most common that I've seen is either shepherds, labs, or, or bloodhounds. Okay, interesting. And I know the bloodhound <clears throat> is, that's famous for that, for the track. Oh, I've seen them do some amazing things, the bloodhounds. Mm. Yep, we had a post office rob down here, and I, I followed the tracks probably a half a mile across the state road and all, and then I lost the track. I circled. I couldn't find it. Come back. And the canine handler that I had worked with before, where we trained the Department of Corrections canine handlers in their strike force to work together. And I knew this was pretty good. And he was there, and he said, all right, who was with you? I said, this guy right here, who was that same Marine that helped me on another track. And he let that dog smell him and smell me. Okay, take us on your track line. So mm. we we followed the track line all the way up, and right where I lost the track, I stopped about fifty yards from there and just let him, the dog, keep going. And that dog got to that spot and took a sharp ninety degree turn, mm. went out across a little road into a garage and put his paws right up on the guy in the garage. The guy was in the garage. Yeah, in the garage oh at his house. God. And while we were gone, while they were interviewing the uh, post office lady, the, she did it, was this like a holdup or was this he broke in at night? Well, no, it's like a holdup type a, thing. An armed robbery? Yeah. And uh, he had a mask and all on. She said it sounded like so and so, you know. She named a, a person. A local. The, and the guy who that dog put his hands up on was that local guy. Wow. <laughs> 
Pretty wow. Pretty powerful. Not a good move to <laughs> arm robbery of a post office. Not a good idea. And so it was crazy, crazy. Wow. Yeah. So I thought what could be kind of interesting would be, could you walk us through, you're already doing it right there with the post office. Could you walk us through a scenario? Like say, I, I could make up a scenario or maybe you mm. have ones that you've already done. But like for me, what I think is very interesting would be like tracking in the mountains. Like yeah. what, say something, like here's what pop came to mind. Like say back in the mountains, there's a murder or something, some back house shack trailer deep in the mountains, surrounded by hundreds of thousands of acres of national forest. It's like, how do you start when you get there? They, mm. uh, where does it begin? Oh, it's, you got to have that starting point. There's no doubt about it in, in whatever you do. And uh, you know, a couple of different scenarios come to mind. Uh, one is actually tracking a bear that was wounded. <laughs> another, a wounded bear? Yeah, mm. during muzzleload. Another one is uh, a break-in at a house. Mm. <clears throat> and I think I'll go with the break-in at the house. Mm -hmm. uh, but And they were friends of mine. Someone broke into their house and stole a bunch of stuff. And I didn't know until a day or two later, and I went out, and uh, I didn't do, do any good on, on the tracking part, picking up on the track. So I told him, I said, put up some game trail cameras in case this guy comes back. So about a week or two later, he calls me up, say, hey, they broke in my house again. And I, I beat the sheriff's department over there. And uh, Were your friends, were they at home when this happened or were they at, gone? Were they at home during the They were the at work They're and at work. came home, found out they'd been broken into again. Mm -hmm. We've, so I got over there. I'm special deputy just for this type of stuff. And uh, we looked at the camera. Wait, what is a special deputy? I, I still have law enforcement authority. Okay. And so, the sheriff calls me out on break-ins and wow. jumping runs and things like that. When people hit the woods. Wow. And uh, I'll go to an investigation like this, and they'll they'll work the crime, but I'll work the out scene, finding ingress and egress coming in now, if, if possible, and additional stuff away. Just like this crime, I went in and uh, this guy's got on gloves. He's got on a mask. Uh, and, and you I, know and that I, from the game camera? Yeah. Okay. A hat. And he had on Nike tennis shoes. And uh, so I go into the house and turn all the lights off, and I'm rolling my flashlight on the floor with an oblique light and picking up a few of his tracks. And uh, so we photograph the tracks. Isn't, a, isn't an oblique light like a, a black light? No, just a regular white light. Okay. Holding it low to the ground. And... Uh, that's another trick for the the tracking, but uh, when you especially finding in a house, uh, searching in a house, you want to turn all the lights off and use an oblique light on the floor. Roll your flashlight on the floor, and you'll pick up every little hair speck of dust. Mm. My wife hates it when I demonstrate that at home. Mm. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I picked up the track and and I uh, we photographed it and all using an oblique light and all we could get was the heel so I pulled out my electrostatic dust lifter uh, which it's about a $700 piece of machinery but you can lift prints off of decks and wood and wow. even carpet with it and pulled the uh, track off the floor and I got the entire track with it and the ball of the foot had circles around it, and then it had some straight lines going from the center of those circles 
to the inner part of the the, the shoe. But uh, so now I got a whole track, so I can confirm if I get on the trail whether it's him or not. If I can find it, well, this was at nighttime. By the time we finished at the house, so the first thing of daylight in the morning, I got out and started circling the house, and I found the trail, the human sign, and I started following it. And there's an ant mound where little ants have a little dirt mound that's about two inches diameter where they come out the ground and back in, where he stepped on that. We call that a track trap. That's a miniature track trap. And with him stepping on that, it left the outer sole impression, pieces of it. And that piece was matched what I seen at the house. So now I'm confirming this is my guy. Go a little bit further, a couple more ant mounds, and now I'm getting almost the whole front of his shoe. And of course, that gets you excited. You really get fired up. And it's an old road, and I go up there, and I see where he parked his car and where he turned around at. And I follow it out and it's uh wait yeah. a second here so you're seeing the impression of where the car was you're seeing the right. tire tracks yeah tire tracks good good point good point and um, seeing where they turned around and i come out at a church that had a child care no uh, no place. can can the tire tracks even be interpreted for the type of tire i've done that before too on another case mm. so we can get on if you want here a little bit but in, anyway, so I called the sheriff up and I said, hey, sheriff, I said, I got this guy's tracks. He, he came through the parking lot at the church and went over and hit his car back here. So we need to go talk to the preacher or the people at the daycare. So we, the so sheriff came on over and uh, talked with him. And he said, yeah, I seen a suspicious car back there the other day and I took a picture of it. And he had a picture of the car and the tag number. So I, uh, so they started looking, ran the tag, found out who it was, and and they uh, looked for the guy and didn't find him about four o'clock that afternoon. But when they found him in the car and got him out and took a picture of his shoe and sent it to me, of course it matched the same thing, which that was pretty awesome. They solved about twenty burglaries. Wow, he was a serial that, burglar. Yeah. Wow. With that. So I mean, so it really sounds like it's piecing together a whole, it's a whole bunch of different information that you're piecing all together. Right. right. So the photographs, the game camera. All that. And, and also on the other side, the sheriff was working at another angle because uh, someone seen a car pull out from the sheriff's lot the day before too, and it had shoes on top of the car and the shoes fell off on the side of the road. And he went and picked the shoes up. And uh, so he had already developed that that car came from the, the church lot. And, of course, I verified it by tracking all the way back to it. So we were hitting it at about two different angles. He was already had the plans to go talk to the people at the church that day. Hmm. So it, it you know, connected it's it together. It's really obvious to me that all modern games, board games, games you play like uh, capture the flag, um, video games. I feel like all of it stems from our roots with hunting, warfare, 
and tracking. <laughs> it's all from that. There, survival. Survival. It all stems from all these survival experiences. Like all of our games are based around those things. The cat and mouse element here with the 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 tracking, the pursuing. Man, fascinating. Mm. Now, have you had experiences? So these sound like thus far they they're cases that take place in rural communities. Have you had ones that have gotten up into the woods, into the mountains? Like, uh, what do you, you know, when? Deep into the, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Come a little closer. I'll give you a good case. Uh, Shenandoah National Park. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a class for the, the park rangers some years back, and about two weeks later, at two o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call. And I say, hey, Mike, we, we're working on something up here. He said, we had a guy camping up here, and two guys come out and started shooting at him, and he he ran back down, and uh, we put two officers on the north end of the Appalachian Trail and two officers on the south end of the Appalachian Trail, and can you come up here at daylight so we can go in there? And uh, they're going to keep anybody from going in or coming out vice versa on each end of this scene. We put him up in a motel room. I said, uh, okay, uh, yeah, I'll be there at daylight. And they brought me his shoes from the alleged victim. And I took photographs and measurements of his shoes instead of carrying them with me. Uh, we took a tactical approach up in into there to move up to that camping area where they claimed that he was in their tent or whatever, and he he had drawn us a map out, forked of the trail and a big rock in the tree and where his tent was and all. But on the way into there, there's a big long mud hole, mud spot in the middle of the trail, probably about twenty feet long and maybe six foot wide. So I told everybody to go around this because there's tracks in it. And uh, we want to secure the area and make it safe before we really start getting the nitty-gritty investigating. We've seen his tracks going up and down, and then there's one other set coming out. But they looked older because it had been raining and had raindrops in them and all. But So we go up there, and we clear the area. There's no one there. Everybody stays put, and I start looking for tracks. So I go up the trail on one side. No tracks to the two people uh, standing up there holding security. I go back down south on the other side of the trail, past the campsite. And then I go back up to this fork in the road and go up it and back. I told Superfather, I said, I don't see any tracks or anybody come out of the woods. I said, let me do one more thing. I'm going to cut from this fork of the trail across the fork through the woods where they allegedly came down through. And I cut through there, and it was pretty thick. I come back, I said, this didn't happen. There's no evidence of anybody coming through there. I said, let's go back down to the mud hole. And everybody else stayed put. We had one at the tent, one at the trail by the tent, and one at the big rock. And me and the supervisor went back down looked at the mud hole, and I started looking at this alleged victim's tracks and his stride going in was longer than his stride coming out now a longer stride is consistent with more expedient movement and this doesn't make any sense to me at all he went in carrying a tent backpack tent and everything and his stride showing that he went in quicker than he came out 
the logic just ain't there. He, I think I'd have came out a heck of a lot quicker than I went in if somebody was shooting at me. So that's physical evidence, pretty much disproving what what he said. So I said, "This didn't happen." So bring your investigators in, and we went in up there with the investigation team back to the campsite. He said he left his campsite when they were shooting at him in a certain way that he ran. Well, I found where he ran, where he had walked and hung his food up in a tree and went back to his tent, but nothing passed that in the direction. So there was no tracks there to confirm his story there. We looked for a bullet trajectory all the way down through the woods by his tent. I found no bullet trajectory, ran metal detectors up through there, Basically, it turned the investigation to investigate this guy. And this guy was, uh, they talked to his ex-wife, and he said, well, he makes up all these crazy stories. That's why I divorced him. They talked to his girlfriend. She said, well, he told me he was an undercover uh, uh, DEA agent, and people were after him. So now we're getting these wild stories. They they looked up his uh, phone records, and his first call wasn't even to the parkway. It was to a police agency where he said he could hear shots in the distance. But they report he reported to them that people were shooting at him. So his stories even changed due to the recordings that they had on him. But uh, basically what we resolved is not bringing in resources for someone who didn't exist. We could tell there was no evidence that it ever occurred. And uh, the lack of tracks is evidence in itself. That was, and they, uh, the park rangers who I dealt with at the time uh, said it's, it's completely changed the way they're dealing with investigating stuff mm-hmm. on the parkway now. Mm-hmm. Using the track evidence, so so that person either you know maybe had some mental issue with making <laughs> stuff up or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he he had a bad habit of doing that. Wow, like what a thing him, to do! It saved him a ton of money. I can't imagine from bringing resources in there, look for someone who didn't even ex- exist. And with all due respect to canines, you know, if a canine handler would have went in there, he just. I didn't find nothing. Mm-hmm. But by using tracking, too, the combination, if the handlers, I'm kind of throwing a punch, uh, not a punch, but uh, something that they don't look, if you train the handlers in tracking, they can set the canine up for better successes, but they can also verify things that the dog cannot verify. And they can count numbers where dogs can't count numbers. And they can backtrack where dogs aren't trained to backtrack. They might do an item search on the back trail, but to follow someone, they're not trained to backtrack. But there's a lot of lot of things there that's really interesting. And if people had an open mind and learned, they could see how effective it it's is. Re- to- I love the element I love about this is piecing together a story. Yeah, and um, that's what I've liked about animal tracking. You know, whether, oh, look, they, uh, the otters, they came to the bathroom right here. Or, you know, you're following <laughs> scat. Or, yeah. oh, look, um, something happened here where they turned around. Or when you see where two animals have come together and they fought or something. Like, I just love being able to, see, to your, you know, me and my Vivian, who you met, the painter, we're always kind of 
we kind of fancifully are saying when you see animal tracks, it's like a wildlife investigation. You're trying yeah. to you're trying to find the story, what's happening, why are they doing what they're doing. So it's so interesting to hear that with law enforcement. Yeah, I found that when I was really getting into the tracking and all, you know, we were scheduled. We had to put in so much boat time because we put get federal money for using working boat patrol hmm. but we'd be out there on days there's nobody on the river so i'd go to an island and i'd start investigating animal tracks on the island and find where a beaver went up to here and cut and found how he drug it hopping sideways cut a limb down and made these oddball looking tracks and drags and putting it all together and then measuring uh a uh uh, muskrat's tracks and then his grouping and, and everything and then i find some divots in the sand over here which i couldn't tell what they were so i started measuring all these divots and they were identical to the muskrat tracks where i could actually see his toes and all so then i could tell that was a muskrat just because of how uh from the previous sign that i had and the measurements that i had so and found uh, I actually have a track of an eagle I made a no. cast of. Amazing. Because I see him on that island all the time when I go up there. And I found this track and deep in the mud and claw marks. And I said, I poured the cast and then took the measurements and all. And uh, sure enough, it was an eagle track. So that was a rare opportunity. That is incredible. An <laughs> eagle track. <laughs> have you found any weird tracks that were unexplainable? <sighs> Well, you find a lot of them, actually. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying you you rarely get a full track on any animal. So you find a lot of unexplainable sign out there that uh, you just scratch your head and throw some wild guesses at it. But uh, confirming it is not, not always doable. Yeah. Some of them, I've seen some in the snow that looks so bizarre. It looks like a... Yeah. I was in the middle of the woods and there, I was in the middle of the woods and it was a bunch of uh, what I think were coyote tracks, but then they turned into what looked like human tracks and went back to coyote. <laughs> so I'm like, well, there's where the werewolf story comes from. Oh, something, something strange. <laughs> I don't know what the coyote was doing, sliding or something. And it created these longer. Well, they got to, people need to understand most of your animals got four legs out there and, and, a lot of time, the hind foot steps right where the front foot is. Just by, it's depending on the the gait that they have. But a lot of that, especially in canines and coyotes, you can't. What you're and even deer, uh, most of your ungulates, that track you're seeing is actually two tracks. It's a bit double that becomes something yeah, strange looking. That's called a direct register. But if they, it's an indirect register, and that hind foot misses it off to the side, then it looks like it's got more toes than what it's supposed to have or makes it look like it's bigger than anything you've ever seen before. So if, you, if you're not aware of that uh, process on the how the animals actually walk, then that, that can fool you. Has all of your – have all of your studies and you leading the school – has and all your um, being on the crime scenes has this all helped you with hunting, with tracking, with hunting? Oh, tracking and hunting, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I one of my fondest hunts I ever went on was was helping a guy track a, the bear through the woods that what? he had wounded with the muzzle loader, 
and it was right at the edge of dark. He had tracked it up to dark and came back, and uh, he probably went 150, 200 yards. And so he was blood tracking? No. He's tracking the the paw. The, yeah, the disturbances in the leaves. I, yeah, there's a little bit of blood in there too. Yes, it was. Because after we ate supper, we went back with lights and we tracked it probably another 150 yards. And there was a few drops of blood. And uh, then at daylight, him and I went back tracking it. And uh, then I could tell by the way his movements were that one of his legs was really messed up because it wasn't consistent with a healthy bear. And he had shot him in the left front shoulder. And uh, we tracked that thing down over a ridge and through a field and where he went through a fence and up into a laurel thicket. And we found his bed in the laurel thicket where he had laid down for the night. In the laurel? Yeah. Now that's spooky. Coming up on a wounded bear in laurel? Yeah. That's what makes it interesting. Anyway, we seen where he left out, and I figured we must have flushed him out coming up through there and talking with each other. But as he was going up this old, old road towards the law, thinking he was going to the right and the left up the road, and I told him, I said, he's hurt. He can't pull this hill. And then we seen where he went off to the laurel. We found the bed. So we started tracking him through the laurel, and gosh, we went— Probably it was a total. The total track was nine tenths of a mile. I put it on the computer and drew the lines where all we went, which was a long ways in the woods, a very long ways. And anyway, we kind of lost him there for a minute, and we were looking around. And uh, my buddy found a bear tracks going down off the ridge, and then I found another one going straight on parallel on the ridge. I said, well, you take that one, and I'll take this one. And his went down to a fence and then to some short grass, and he lost it, and he couldn't see it. But mine was parallel in the fence up the ridge, and I was still on mine, so he just walked along the fence. And he says, I seen Mike. He's right up in front of you. He's just staying ahead of you. And I stopped and looked, and then I seen him kind of double back. So you were kind of bumping him? Yeah. And I said, and I didn't, I, I didn't have a muzzle loader with. I had my forty caliber Glock with me, you know, because I wasn't planning on shooting him unless it attacked me or something. But uh, I said, well, you come up here and get on him, and I'll go back down where you're at <laughs> so that you could shoot him. And we swapped places, and he pushed him a little bit more and got up on him and finished him off. But uh, that was just awesome. Uh, that bear would have never been by been found <laughs> from most most people because mm. uh, it happens a long ways off. It was a great track, the excitement of it, and the fact that the, the danger of it, <laughs> a wounded bear going through a laurel thicket. And <laughs> I There is an incredible sense of kind of accomplishment with like woodsmanship when you can track. Like I've helped, oh, yes. my stepdad shot a deer and he couldn't find it. And I drove over 30 minutes away. I came over and it was just blood tracking. But, um, you know, finding the smallest little droplet on the leaves, it probably took me well over an hour and a half, two hours. But he kind of gave up and I found it. Mm -hmm. And to it's just, it is incredible 
to be finding the smallest signs. And in, in our scenario, it was blood, tiniest little amounts. I'm, I, I don't think I could track just by looking for feet. Mm-hmm. So that bear was all by its paws. It was mainly paw signs. After he left the bed up there uh, the next morning in daylight after that, he wasn't bleeding at that point mm. in time. I don't think we found any blood after that. But up to the bed, we'd find a little drop down then. So, uh, you know what I think would be really interesting to hear your perspective on, just from my basic experience, like with that deer, it's like, what do you do when you get to the last, both for wildlife or for human tracking? What happens when you get to that last track and you can't find, because with the blood tracking, it's like, okay, I see a drop here. And then usually you can kind of like pick up the next drop a few feet away and keep, it's like a breadcrumb trail. But what happened, but I had the experience of when you lose that drop Mm. and then you're, and you know, I guess you kind of make small circles. Can you describe what do you do when you get to that last track? Yeah, we have a plan procedure that we use, a systematic procedure. And from a big perspective, you can look at it as a... uh, a contamination, a known contamination procedure. You know where you've been and where you haven't been. But uh, basically, uh, when when a- even animals and people travel, they look for the path of least resistance. They don't like going into the thick stuff and and uh, easy walking. We're all like that, pretty much. So we mark that last known spot somehow, either in your mind, usually in your mind. I look around, say it's right by this big tree or by that stump or a rock or something. And uh, we continue on the direction it was going for probably uh, 20 or 30 yards is my comfort zone. If I don't see nothing that way, then I go all the way back to that last known. I don't just, you don't just wander around hoping to get into it. You've got a systematic procedure to follow. You go back to that last known, and then you look for different directions they might have taken. And there's influencers out there in these mountains there is. Now, out in the desert, it's not like that. But you might have trees or thickets or briars or something where they're not going to go through that, or I'd known it. I can see it. I'm going to go around the left side of it. Wait, wait. What would you know? You would see the brush would have been pushed down or something. Yeah, exactly. Or if if it's got leaves on it, then you would see where they were turned over. If there's a lot of vines there, you can see where they're drug out okay. uh, in this thick stuff. So, uh, like, and every medium's got this key sign you look for. Uh, and uh, so, so you take off in another direction, out to about 30 yards, 20 yards, 30 yards at the most. And then you come back and look for any other directions and go out them. And if I don't find it doing that, then I go back on my track. If I've been going out 20 yards, then I want to, from my last known, I want to backtrack 20 yards. And then I'm going to make a circle and go outside of those other areas that I just went to. Because if they stopped at that point and kind of went backwards at an angle, then it would separate from the trail and you could pick it up. But uh, so I do what we call a 360 around the last known. And you can do a, a bigger 360 if you don't pick it up. And if you don't do it, find it doing that, then we look at, then we start looking at the terrain 
and look for key areas where your sign would be easy if they cross. If there's a creek, I'm going to walk that creek because going up and down the banks, getting in the water, no, you're probably going to have plusher vegetation. You're going to have wet soil that's uh, mud or whatever to show where they went in and out. If there's a steep ridge or something, let's say to the left side, I'm not going to get on top of that ridge because that's the hardest place to find tracks. On the side of a steep bank, it's the easiest place because on the side of a bank, you're either going to dig your toes in going up, your heels in coming down, or the side of your foot going along it. So you're going to make more damage to keep them slipping and falling. So I'll go to the side of that bank. And then maybe it's the vegetation change up in front 100 yards where you start you're getting ferns growing or uh, some type of vegetation. So you walk the edge of that, the two mediums, because one's going to show sign better than the other. And uh, try to uh, see if you can pick it up there. So I'm, I'm, some, some call it boxing in around the, the, the last known and, or using uh, natural uh, vegetation or the natural surroundings to your best advantage. And that's all you could do is keep working it like that until you get tired. Now, have you ever been after someone who knew how to conceal their tracks? <laughs> Fortunately, anyone who learns how to conceal their tracks learns it through TV. Okay. So they're helping us out a great deal, literally, because most of the TV is uh, for show. Okay, it's not very good. <laughs> no, right. So, I mean, I hate to bring this into, I hate to bring this in because we're not really talking about this, but, you know, I did a podcast um, with a man on the Eastern Shore, and he was, uh, he is preserving the history of some of the slavery on, on the Eastern Shore and, and Harriet Tubman's story. And when Harriet Tubman escaped to go north, like she used waterways. So she went through mm. the swamps, she went through waterways. I've heard um, even that, you know, that old time song, um, as I went down to the river to pray. You've heard that song? Mm, no. It's an old so. time like folk song, but it might actually be coded for um, for some of the African-Americans to, to use the Underground Railroad. So I know that one way that people have escaped throughout history is using waterways. And because mm. I know it'll get dogs off you. I've heard with coon hunting, if the raccoon goes into the water, it can lose the trail. Like if you wanted... If you wanted a good tip to not be tracked, what do you do? Do you take the river? Do you take the creek? Do you swim? Do you walk the creek? <laughs> I'm going to put it this way because I don't like to release a lot of that stuff. <laughs> Learn your track, then you know how to anti-track. <laughs> You'll know what they're looking for yeah. and where they're going to be looking. Yeah. But there's uh, there's ways to defeat all of that stuff you're talking about right there. Yeah, I believe it. I've even heard a story with some crazy, crazy son of a bitch out in Alaska who kind of went nuts and was just shooting at everybody. And uh, they sent a huge amount of people after him. And he was doing all this double backing and like, because he was in the snow, yeah. but he yeah. was doing all this strange stuff walking backwards through his tracks and really throwing people off. So, of course, I'm sure it's a, there's a game. Was that the Mad Trapper, I think Yes, he is. yes, the yeah. Mad Trapper, mm -hmm. the Mad Trapper. Yeah, I've read the book and seen the movies. And okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, he was, I don't know that they ever have identified who that guy really was, but mm. 
That was an interesting read, too. Mm. He was a pretty tough guy out there in the cold where he was at mm. and the things he was doing. But, mm. uh, yeah. Now, have you ever been in a scenario where you were scared for your own life? Like, have you ever been after someone that was, like, really, really a dangerous person? Or has it all been kind of, like, more on the petty? Not really. Okay. Uh, well, you know, we we tracked the guy that killed his dad and all. But, uh, no, I mean, we kind of expected that. Uh, but uh, not really... Where I was scared. Well, I'm all, you're always scared. I, I can't say I wasn't scared. You're always scared, but you feel confident enough in your stuff that you you have the upper edge. Let's just put it that way. Mm. <laughs> mm. If you're not scared, you're a fool. So. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Now, you were telling me, um, well, you said you were a game warden. Yeah. So what mm -hmm. was a lot of your experiences with that? Was it mainly, I've heard a lot of game wardens actually on podcasts. Was it mainly just people ticketing, not buying, not getting their licenses, stuff like that? Well, that's, a, that's kind of the most common thing people think, but people don't have a clue the stuff that game wardens get into up there. I mean, all of your violators are human beings. I'm, I'm talking rapists, robbers, murderers, whatever, and they like recreation too. So they hunt and fish. So you you don't know who you're dealing with out there. And uh, also, usually the game wardens is who the local police get to when they're after someone in the woods because they're the ones that knows the area, and we assist other agencies. So uh, we wear a lot of hats out there. So. And you're in uh, remote areas, and in, the person is armed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, yeah, I walked into some guys. I drove into some guys I know were moonshiners, and there's about eight or ten of them, and I put on the biggest Barney Fife show you ever seen before because I didn't know how many was in the woods who had guns on me, and uh, I was kind of like a, a howdy-doody guy. Hope you all have a good day. I'll see you later, and got out of there because uh, – I was way back in the middle of nowhere where the state police said, if you go back there, you better unsnap your gun if you want to come back out. And and it ain't no doubt they had a steel going down in there at that moment. And because of the type of call I got, somebody was squirrel hunting back in there. Someone sent me back in there. to, And uh, back then, we didn't even have bulletproof vests. We didn't have portable radios. All we were issued was a... Uh, 38 with 12 rounds of ammunition. So you couldn't get into anything you couldn't get yourself out of. Yeah, that was, that was kind of spooky. <laughs> so you were so spooked, you just you just got out? Because it was just you? Yeah, it was just me. And, and uh, I ran into those guys, and I had to turn around. Looking for squirrel hunters, like I said, I put on a, a Barney Fife show. What do you hey, mean? Hey, y'all, y'all boys heard any anybody shooting up in here? They squirrel hunting, you know. And I'm looking around, and there's beer cans knee high on both sides of the road, where a lot of time's been spent there. And, and y'all ain't got no guns with you, do you? And just kind of glanced around in the vehicles. No, we, they said we're just up here trying to get away from the wives. And I'm like, bull crap. Mm. It's so obvious. I just tried to act so dumb. That 
<laughs> were they were they on the road or were they in no, a shack? No, this was way back in the mountains. This was way back in the mountains and the dirt road. On the way in there, this guy comes flying up behind me in a flatbed truck. Why? What are you doing in here? I ain't never seen a gun anymore back in here. No. And I said, I heard somebody squirrel hop back here. Well, come on, I'll show you the way. And he's flying down the road out in front of me and beeping his horn. Even to tell the other voice. Let them know something's coming down the road. Of course, I come around the road up there, and I said, about four or five trucks sitting there, and probably eight or ten people. I'm like, cold crap. I've not rode right in the middle of this hornet nest, and I don't want to stir them up. Was there a shack or anything back there? No, no, no. And my eyes was too busy watching them guys looking around to really look good. I, I, I knew what I had right there, and I knew, by God, I mean, they could bury me back here, and no one would ever find me. So uh, that was way, that was back in the 80s. Up near Hurley, Virginia. <laughs> the that, cold fields, West Virginia line. Oh, man. Now, that's a spooky one. Yeah, yeah. Now, you said, it's, now, you said, um, you, uh, for a time, you were working at a, at a prison that had a farm on it? Yeah, yeah, back when, uh, that's back in 76, I think it is, the state farm. Maximum Security Prison down in Powhatan, Virginia. Yeah, and I had never, I've never heard anything like that. You said that on the phone, the prisoners would make grow their own food, and yeah, they had a farm. They raised their food down there. They had a slaughterhouse. They raised the beef, fed the cows, made the hay, milked the cows, and all of that. Yeah, I've never heard anything like that. <laughs> and and you, um, you told me you were running a trap line while working at the prison. Yeah, yeah, I'd get off duty and run the trap line. By were you a security or something? What was your uh, role? I was a president, correctional officer. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Mm. We had barracks down there, so we'd go down there and live for 10 days and then come home for five, 10 days on, five days off. Mm. So for my spare time while I was staying down there, uh, first was pretty good price back then. I'd run a trap line. Mm. In, just like around it? Yeah. Because it was on, out in the woods? On the prison property, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. What were you going for? Raccoon? It, yeah, and fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly raccoon and fox, yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, they had a farmer, so they had a lot of crops there along there. Okay, here's a thought I, I've been having since you told me that on the phone. I So I went, I got sent to a private school for three years because I was such a troublemaker as a kid. <laughs> okay, and then the, the private school was very strict. And... Um, I was always in the principal's office. And now that principal is my friend. And I always kind of noticed that the principal seemed to kind of like the bad boys. Like, did you, when you worked in the prison, even though you, I don't know what sorts of guys you were around, but did you, was there any part of you that like could like the people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're human beings just like us. Some some of them just made a mistake. Exactly. And some of them were just out, thinks everyone owes everybody, owes owes them everything, or they're all out for themselves. But uh, there's a lot of what I thought was good guys in there. That made the wrong moves. Oh, oh, yeah. And we had guys come up 
to us, you know, I said, man, I know I screwed up. I made a mistake. I said, if these guys don't keep their hands off me, I'm going off on them. Hmm. But, uh, you know, they're trying to do right and trying to get out. But uh, the, it's, uh, it's no one can explain to you what it's like inside of a prison. you got to be in there either. One moment it's boring as can be, and the next moment there's so much excitement and intensity that it's mm. overwhelming. Mm. I can't imagine. Did you ever come across someone that 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 you could really see? Evil is such a strong word. But oh you, yeah, <laughs> yes. No so doubt. this is why I ask that, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I love mm. psychology. I love philosophy. All sorts of stuff like that. I love hearing stories from people. When I, so here's something I've been thinking about for the past 24 hours. Um, there was a woman who I had on the podcast. She's a, um, a citizen scientist. She does, she's a firefly expert. She's in Tennessee. So she is really instrumental with her church on mentoring children who live dark, dark lives. I mean, they, their, their parents are all messed up. They've got dads that are drug addicts, sometimes moms that are prostitutes, dark and she's been trying to mentor these kids. And she told me a story about she had one kid who was really, um, it was frustrating. Like she wasn't, able, it was like really hard for her to help this kid out. And she asked like a child psychologist and um, she said, hey, um, she needed some advice. The child psychologist said this, and I'll never forget this. The child said, psychologist said to her that if you can see the light in the kid's eyes, don't give up. But if that light goes out, there's nothing you can do. And my hairs are standing up. Woo! So have you come across people who've lost that light? Let me tell you this way. When I was first in the military police and they put a 45, slid it across to me in a, in a magazine when my first patrol day, and I slipped it into that gun, it shocked the crap out of me. I said, I'm loading this gun to shoot people with. Not animals. I'm not hunting and I'm not target practicing. And that whole night on patrol, that's all I could think about. What right do I have to make that judgment? Then it's like, uh, that's why I went through this training. People trust me to pass and make the right decisions on there. And if it's something's got to be done, it's got to be done. So, you know. It's a heavy I, burden. I question myself, but. After working at the maximum security prison that I was at, there's people that need to be shot out here. There is some sick people. You're never going to turn them around. Mm. And so. <laughs> like in that story, I said they've lost that life. Yeah, exactly. I do. Uh, I know you're not too into like paranormally stuff, but I do believe in like spirits or energy. I do believe, I think there's a Russian proverb that in every one of us, there are two wolves, a light wolf and a dark wolf. And the yeah, one you- I've heard that story. <laughs> and the one you feed grows. I really yeah. do yeah. believe that an, a good person, if they feed the wrong wolf, the darkness long enough, they'll be lost. And they'll be oh, like yeah. black. Yeah. Like, you know, like the lightless in their eyes. I mean, I'm sure you've come across mm -hmm. some people who are dark as can be. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. How have you, because I feel like you're quite a joyous guy. How have, I'm sure you've seen some dark stuff. Like how have you <laughs> maintained your own sanity and your own uh, joy for being alive? Like, do you know what I mean? Like 
optimism. You Opti- seem pretty optimistic. Uh, well, uh... when I worked at the prison, I did a lot of self-searching down there. I mean, as much as going out in the middle of nowhere and sitting down and grabbing a handful of dirt and looking at it and pouring it, this is what I'm made out of. Everything's made out of this. Everything we eat comes out of the ground, the dirt, and we're going to return to this. What's the meaning of us being here to start off with? And I, I read a bunch of books, Dr. Wayne Dwyer, your erroneous zones, and uh, read the Bible, was reading the Bible and all of this, and it was all uh, put, trying to put together and make sense out of things. And I was having headaches and struggles and, and, and all this stuff back then. Well, I was kind of bottomed out at that time in my life, and, and, and you know, trying to deal with all this stuff, the, the actions in the, in the prison and all, and I had some rough times emotional times of myself uh, during that time and uh, all this kind of I was trying to get through it I knew how I was and had been and then I was going through some changes of some sort and uh, I needed some support and it come to me and I went to a National Guard drill one day and I I couldn't focus on anything we were doing at the drill. I went to the lieutenant and said, Lieutenant, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I said, but I can't focus on what's going on out here today. He said, just hang in here for the rest of the day. And I went home and I went to bed to take a nap, and my head was hurting, and I had a date with the girl that night. My, and I started to lay down, and I was scared to go to sleep and take a nap because I thought I was going to have an aneurysm. My, my head hurt so much. Anyway, I, I got up, got ready for that date. My brother come in and said, you all right? You don't look too good. I said, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, got in the car to go to pick this girl up, and I was driving through the middle of town, and something literally snapped in my brain, in my head, or felt like it snapped or broke. But everything got cloudy and dark and gray, and the warmest feeling came over me from my head all the way down through my feet and I just started crying. I was crying out of happiness because I knew I'd never have to suffer again for anything. I mean, it was, I knew it was real and it was coming from God and this is the Holy Ghost. He took all the burdens off of my shoulders, off of my mind and uh, I was just joyous, so joyous. Just a warm and joyous feeling all the way through my body. That, that's what was so crazy. It wasn't something just mentally up here changed my mind and way of thinking, but it just, it's like it engulfed my entire body. Uh, uh, oh, it was just, it's crazy. It was, but I'd, uh, I had read. If you meet the Holy Ghost, you'll know it when you meet him. And it ain't no doubt in my mind that's, I mean, he, he took me over and uh, 
since that day, I can kind of say nothing happened real quickly, but it changed my whole direction in life. And uh, I started prospering ever since then and try to make the right decision most of the time, but our old habits come back now and then. But uh, just the way you look at things and knowing that there's going to be uh, at the end, I kind of made a vow that day too, right before all this happened, that I'm not going to die now. I'm not ever going to die because I don't want to hurt anybody else's feelings, people that miss you. I said, I'm going to live as old as I can until all my friends are gone, and then I'm going to go so that I don't hurt nobody. <laughs> that sounds kind of weird, I reckon, but because uh, I didn't want them, you know, I won't be around to help my friends and all as much as I can while I'm here and help them get through any kind of struggles or anything they got. So, uh, and, but ever since then, it, nothing bothers me much anymore. Uh, well, it bothers me that things can, people can be so ridiculous, but then, but, uh, I know I can handle whatever gets thrown at me now. And it's got a whole lot to do with uh, you are what you think you are in your mind's eye. Whatever you think you are, you're going to go down that road. So if you think you're bad or not fit, then you're going to start doing, you'll do stuff to make you, to encourage yourself to be that way, to prove that you're right. Prayer, that's what prayer is all about. What do you want out of life? Pray for it. Because then you set yourself up goals and, and, you, and you subconsciously start working towards that goal. If you, wow, if you so sit there at night and say, I feel sorry for myself. Oh, I'm ugly. Oh, I can't do this. Oh, I can't do that. Then that's the way you're going to act and you're going to keep feeding that. If you, start, if you open your mind up and say, this is what I want. This is how I want to feel. This is what I want to do. You... You subconsciously work towards those goals, and you don't even realize that it comes at you in the weirdest ways. Then you re look back and realize, I've done exactly what I thought I wanted to do. I wanted to be a game warden all since I was in high school. Didn't make good grades, no nothing, but I ended up doing it. Then I also wanted to be recognized as an outdoorsman, a guy who does his way around the woods. <laughs> And, and I've always looked at the world in, in two phases. There's society made by man, and then it's God's world, the natural world. And I, that's why I want to be a game warden, because I want to protect the natural world. And uh, you don't find me around cities very much at all. I, I go to the mountains and, and try to avoid them all that I can, because it's so corrupt and... and Fake. Mm. Mm. I do. I've lived in New York City for 10 years, and now I've lived in the country for six. And the, what I've found is that the country has soul. Yeah. And I, yeah. that was something I could never feel or contact in a big city. It has like, um, I don't even know how to describe soul, but it feels like it's in the earth. It's like a way of living. It's a, a way of, a like almost like a beautiful way to see things. It's just filled, it's whole, it's full. And um, something I wanted to mention that I found fascinating, I, this is just a, out of curiosity, I'm asking this. 
Um, cause you said when you first got that gun, you were like, what is my, how do I carry this, the weight of this responsibility? I, some, I wonder you often, so like, there's an amazing documentary called cartel land that has to do with a bunch of people down in Mexico who became vigilantes because they, there was no one to help them. They had mm -hmm. to protect their own community. Right. But by the end of watching the documentary, the people who are protecting the community are starting to do, are starting to become like the bad guys. So I, do, it, how it, it, it must be such a hard role to be surrounded by the quote unquote bad guys and not become a bad guy. It, it hardens your 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 uh, thought or your soul, basically. Uh, what what was precious at one time, the the feeling that you get from that it gets hardened up. And like, like you say, you'll just do it the bad stuff not even thinking about it anymore and uh, like you say you go past that you go past that uh what 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 was meaningful to you in the past that you wouldn't do and that's why the cops do if you could you leave them playing the game undercover or whatever for a while it, it'll it can turn you right around and you end up on the other side. Mm. A good possibility because you're around it so much. Mm. It's what you surround yourself with. And now it, it, subconsciously, it, it's starting to control your thoughts and wow. your values. Exactly what you're saying about the prayer. It's mm -hmm. what you're focused on. If your whole right. life is surrounded by kind of darkness yeah. and the underworld in a way, you know, the underworld, workings of the underworld, then, then you can perhaps be taken over by that energy. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yep, exactly. Wow. Spot on. Well, hey, that this has been incredible. I think maybe to close it up, you told me you do <laughs> a, you do a little bit of herbalism, which I think is so neat. I love that I love that people you can't really pigeonhole people. You know, you can't just say you're one thing. You know, I interview a lot of herbalists, mm -hmm. uh, most of them <laughs> women. And I love talking to them. They've got amazing stories. They're very spiritual. They see the woods in a very spiritual way. Um and the plants, they even talk to the plants sometimes. I love hearing about that because it's different than my own experience. So today I love that here I am with someone who's been in law enforcement, um, man tracking, all that. And then at the same time, you have this side of you that's interested in plant medicine, herbal medicine. Mm -hmm. D and did you say you even go out and forage your own? Yeah, yeah. And, and I do a lot of it when I'm teaching classes and we're walking around because these people, you're out in the woods and get hurt or injured, you know, and you don't have the proper equipment. It's good to know a lot of this stuff. Like I'll, I'll point out, hey, if you're getting a bee nest out here, this plantain right here, you chew this up and put it on there to kill the pain. You, you get cut out here or get a bad cut, this yarrow plant right here, that'll coagulate the blood. It'll fight any kind of infection. I tell them about those movies. People get infected, gunshot wounds, and they go out and find a plant in the movie and say, this is what they're looking for right here because it'll fight that. In fact, you got a toothache, abscess tooth. I've used it myself. Before a class, stopped on the side of the road, walked out in the woods, got this yarl, chewed it up, put it in my tobacco, like in my jaw like tobacco. I didn't know that one. It'll kill the pain and all, and it got me got me through the class. Wow. Uh, so did you get into the herbal medicine kind of from the survival point of view? Like survival it, skills? Yeah, yeah, kinda. Kinda. Just to be comfortable in the woods comfortable out there and you sit out there on surveillance in this last six years i was a special agent 
And we do surveillance all day long sometimes. And you get out there and you have a headache or something and or you need to treat something. To, and sometimes they drop us off and come back and pick us up in the evening. So you're on your own out there. So if you get hurt or whatever, what, what can we eat out here? What can we uh, treat ourselves with? Were you like sitting in a blind or what were you in? Uh, well, whatever we make out there. You make like a, like, do you make like a, a ground blind with trees and yeah, foliage? depending on what you're doing. Yeah, sometimes we do that and we sit there all day long. So it's like a stakeout or something? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And Basically. you're looking for offenders of some yeah. way, shape, or form? Wow. We set out on one guy the entire turkey season, watched his house every day from three o'clock in the morning till two o'clock in the afternoon. And then we we had a bear trap that we, uh, 42 days, we did surveillance on that. We, on a bear trap? Yeah. Because it's illegal to bear trap. Right. We'd walk in. And, and what was the turkey guy was a poacher? Yeah. He was hunting out of yeah. season or we what? We documenting the hours that he went hunting, how many turkeys he brought home. And then after the season's over with, we went to see if we checked any of them. And he didn't check them, so we get a search warrant. Did that guy ever actually trap a bear? Yeah, he did catch a bear. We wanted to know what he was going to do with it. We sat on that all night long. Uh, and he was, uh, he had it in a cage, and he was uh, training his dogs with it. He'd turn his dogs loose and then fight the bear through the cage. Wow. Not good. We didn't know if he was going to sell it or what he was going to do with it, you know. And we had guys in the unmarked cars to follow him because he's next to the state line. Mm. And uh, see if he's going to take it across the state line, which that would violate federal law. But uh, once we seen what he was doing, then we had to break that off just to keep the uh, all the tension down from the bear so he wouldn't get too tore up and... We cooled him all. He didn't give him any food, water, or nothing. Oh, that's so we, that's we, nasty. We stuff. cooled him down and all, and took him, turned him loose. So you re-released the bear? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Did you have to tranquilize yeah. it? No, no. We just left him in the trap, loaded him up. Wow. Um, okay, this is something I almost was going to forget to ask you about. When you were a game warden, when I first moved to like the countryside in Virginia, I, we were in a cabin kind of outside of the Shenandoah Park. Mm-hmm. I had heard from my stepdad that there was some serious situations with people poaching bears for their gallbladders to sell to the, mm-hmm. the Asian oh, yeah. market. Did you do you know what I'm talking about? Could you oh, yeah. could you say could you elaborate on what was going on? Oh yeah, they did that and uh, bear paws and gallbladders and all that. And our, our covert guys, they uh, <clears throat> they got in with a bunch of them and busted a bunch of them and we also set up a store up there in the, in the valley and where a covert guy was actually buying uh ginseng and and uh bear stuff and also selling stuff and people would come in and ask if they could get them to them and our team would actually uh follow those guys across the state line with this illegal stuff and so get them on the Lacey Act so it was black market, black market bear, black market ginseng out of season. Yeah, that's that's pretty. Com- it was more common back then. I think ginseng's pretty big right now. In fact, they may be putting it on the endangered species list. Mm. It's getting so so bad. But uh, back then, there was a lot of the bear gallbladder stuff going on. 
I've been out for almost 10 years now, so I don't know how prevalent that is at this time. But we got a lot more bear now than we ever had. Mm. And were they selling it to like the Chinese market? It's like it was, well, it was Asian medicine. Asian people. I mean, they they would come and get the whole bear. And, they uh, would come back here. Yeah, they would come wow. to this store and really load up a. Whole was it bear. like mafia, like but, like Asian mafia nah, stuff? Or? I don't think it's that. I, I think it's individuals that. Mm. Uh, they just believe in that stuff. Okay, okay, you know? okay. So for their own like folk healing, quote unquote. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's more like that, and and these ly eels, you know, all these eels that you catch in these mountain streams. Okay. They all come from down in the Caribbean. Okay. Believe it or not, because I had to do research on it, and they they have uh, they they look like jelly beans when they come back up. And uh, they're clear and crystal, and they, they collect at the bottom of these dams, and the Asians will collect those paid by the pound. Mm. But these eels out back here in these mountains, uh, once they mature and all, they'll take off and go all the way down to the Caribbean mm. and have their young, and then they'll all swim right back up here. Mm. Now, that's hard to believe. Yes, <laughs> I've, I've, I've had a guy tell me about that. They'll swim all the way up to, to West Virginia. Up yeah. the Potomac and stuff like that mm-hmm. for the the eel spawn. Um, you grew up around here, right? Yeah. So did you would when did your did you learn any of the herbal stuff from your elders, like from grandma or mom no. or anything like that? No. Okay. No. Okay. No. I got a book that I really like a whole lot, and uh, I'm learning most of it from it. So. Okay. Yeah, you showed me your apothecary. You've got a good <laughs> amount of stuff. Oh. All them other books above all that stuff in there too. It's all these survival books and mm. edible plants books mm. and medicine mm. books. But I got one particular one now. That's my go-to. Nice. Did you grow up around here with anything like? Did you ever know anyone doing like the water witching stuff where they could find track water? <laughs> yeah, actually, I had some guys do that even at my house right here, and I had a guy give me some and. uh and I started reading up on that and all. But here again, I think that's all comes back to the sixth sense. And and it's kind of like uh, with the knowledge that you develop where water veins come from and the water lines and all of that. I think it's just a way of tapping into your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, for stuff that you can't put your finger on. And uh, I think I do that a whole lot too because I can't articulate it or tell you the name of stuff, but I know it. Mm. And uh, you start, it goes out to your arms, into your fingers, and you start working them things together. You've uh, done it. Oh, yeah. And oh, could yeah. could you find water? No, I didn't. I didn't try it that that much. But I got into the water witching and and uh, was playing around with it at one time. You know, some people try to find treasure with it too. Yeah. So yeah. so I had, did a podcast where I talked to a young woman. She's a folklorist. Uh, she's an herbalist. She does a lot of folklore. She even a lot of stuff back in Europe. And she said that whole water witching in Appalachia, and it's usually men that did it. Mm-hmm. Um, that that goes back into like medieval times in Europe they, where they would use rods uh, or sticks. I think it was hazel sticks. 
I, I just read this in a book I have of curious medieval mm-hmm. legends, but there was a guy in this story, I might read it before the podcast, who used his rods, like Renaissance times, maybe medieval mm-hmm. times, and they called the, there was a murder in some, in Lyon, like in France, and in this little village, and no one could, the, the investigators or whatever they were at the time, couldn't figure out what it was, so they asked this guy who could do the rods, and he tracked down the murderers over a period of time. It's mm. in, and, you know, obviously, is it a legend? Is it folklore? We don't really know. But there was a handful of people who who wrote down this account. So I just think that's so neat. And like you said, I think it might be a tool to, you might have a tool that can awaken things in yourself. You know, it's not the tool. I don't believe it's the rod so much as maybe just doing this, the the ritual of it, holding them, you know, mm-hmm. and obviously studying your environment so much, you can kind of like, awaken parts of yourself exactly there you go yeah <laughs> yeah i think it's more in that line too and that that uh gosh what did joe mcmonagle uh remote viewing is, oh yeah is what they call uh, <laughs> what do you think of that well that's uh, that's what joe mcmonagle he, he's he's kind of like the top guy in the country on that stuff he used to do it for the military and all and uh I think it's a whole lot the same thing. Do you think it's real? Huh? Oh. Yeah, in a way, yeah. And I guess the idea there would be like... I mean, we looked for a little girl down here uh, that was lost, and uh, and Joe came over, and I said, y'all listen to this guy, because he's a real deal. And he he pointed out it's somewhere in this area, and that's where we found her. No way. (laughs) No kidding. So he, he, I mean, we didn't just go there because, Mm -hmm. but as they spread the searchers out and the people found them, that's the area that they found her in. And he remote viewed that that's where the girl was Mm -hmm. and she was ended up being okay. No, she's dead. Wow. She died of hypothermia that night. Yeah. Wow. Did he see that? See what? Did he see the state that she was in? No. He just, Mm. he just had a feeling. Mm-hmm. or some kind of vision for where she was. Mm-hmm. Wow, powerful. I want to interview someone like that. Mm-hmm. Where is that man? He's right over here, about two miles from oh, here. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And he does yeah. all that stuff? He's one of the top guys in the country for remote viewing? I don't know. I haven't heard much out of him for some years now. <laughs> okay. and I reckon he's still over there. Okay. He, well, <laughs> a funny story about that. Well, it ain't funny at all. He came up my driveway one day. I said, hey, Joe, how you doing? He said, not good, Mike. I'm having a heart attack. Can you call the rescue squad for me? <laughs> so uh, he came in the house here and waited for the rescue squad. To have. He said, I knew you knew CPR, and I didn't think I was going to make it to the hospital. So he's having health troubles. Yeah. He's, so, he's an older gentleman? Yeah. Okay. So I don't I think he was in NOM, you know, but okay. I don't know what kind of shape he's in right now. It's been a while since I've seen him. Okay. Okay, well, this has been an awesome conversation. I thank you for doing this. Um, uh, I guess in closing, um, so your school isn't really for the average person. It's not really for civilians like me, but you did write a book. Is there, um, do you want to tell people about your website and anything about the school? Well, my website's whole is tracking school. Uh, I did. I wrote a book on man tracking and law enforcement. I, I got a friend, Rob Speeden, who wrote another book. We were running neck to neck. We worked together a lot, and 
he finished his first, and I proofread it, and uh, I said, darn, this is a good book right here, Rob's got. I said, I'm going to change mine and go to how you can use tracking in law enforcement because that's, it'll be just redundant to, to what he's got. It, what we were doing. His was more uh, wilderness skills? His is really in-depth for the individual person just to learn tracking as a personal experience or in Mm -hmm. search of rescue because that's what he's uh, he's, he's good at, what he's done his whole life. And I've been doing it from a law enforcement perspective. So if you're in law enforcement and want to learn the value of tracking in law enforcement, then that's what what my book's about. And um, Okay, final question. All right. Okay, we're just going to have fun with this, okay? Uh, okay. My last episode I did was with the Hatfield and McCoys. Uh, I interviewed um, a man whose uh, great, great, great grandfather was Devil Ants Hatfield, the main patriarch of the family. So I've been thinking about myself. If it were 200, 300 years ago, and I lived in the backwoods, frontier lifestyle, how would I act? Right. I think about that a lot. Would I be mm. like those guys or would I be better than those guys? But here's what I've been wondering. <clears throat> With your tracking skills, this is just the imagination we're being playful right now. If someone really wronged you or your family 300 years ago, would you be able to find them? <laughs> would you be able I, to like track I'd them? I'd die to find them. <laughs> die looking. <laughs> <laughs>